Welcome to Archaeoed, a podcast about ancient civilizations in the Americas. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnard, and I've been an archaeologist all around the Americas for over 20 years now. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about ancient civilizations that I find interesting. Sometimes it'll be overviews, sometimes it'll be very in-depth information, basically anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast and I'm just having fun with it. I hope you enjoy it too. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and let's get started. Episode 3, The Hopewell. The Hopewell a people who I affectionately call America's first math nerds, were a culture whose epicenter was modern-day Ohio. They existed between roughly 100 BCE and 500 CE. From a Western perspective, that's roughly during the height of the Roman Empire's expansion. Hopewell mastery of geometry, land survey, and astronomy are the things that really excite me, and I'm going to get to those. But first, let's talk about the who, what, when, where, and why of Hopewell civilization. First off, the Hopewell didn't just appear out of nowhere. They were descendants of another culture called the Adena. The Adena are fascinating too, and at some point I may give them their own episode, but for now I'll touch upon them only in reference to the Hopewell. The Adena cultural epicenter was also modern-day Ohio with extents and maybe trade networks reaching to the surrounding states. Starting at about 1000 BCE, they started building large burial mounds of earth. They would cap those with a final version of clay and smooth out their surfaces. Though they rarely get recognized for what they are, they're really pyramids. Just a moment ago, I said that the Hopewell didn't appear out of nowhere. But the Adena, well, they kind of did. Before the Adena, life in the Ohio area had been stuck in the Archaic period for thousands of years. People were living semi-nomadic lives and hunting in seasonal rounds. The only mounds they created were piles of shells along the rivers where they pulled them out and ate their inhabitants. But somewhere down the line, those Archaic people took to burying their dead in those piles of shells, or shell middens, as archaeologists call them. Once they did that, those middens were no longer just trash heaps. They were burial grounds. The more people that they buried in a single shell mound, the more important it became. By the way, we also find dogs occasionally buried in the shell mounds. Analysis shows no signs of cut marks on the bones, so we suspect they were pets and companions. It would appear that dogs have been man's best friend in the Americas for thousands of years. But I digress. When the Adena culture evolved, they started burying their dead in larger mounds made of earth. And I suspect that was based on the previous tradition of interments in shell mounds. In those Adena burial mounds, we find funerary objects that were also new. Things like jewelry, objects of art, and most surprisingly ceramic vessels. Up until this point, ceramics were only being made down in the coastal areas of Georgia. Their appearance in Ohio almost certainly denotes an emerging trade network between those two regions. The Adena way of life thrived for about 500 years until it evolved into Hopewell culture. In my way of thinking, 
the Hopewell are essentially Adena 2.0. The Hopewell did everything the Adena did, but at a grander scale. More and bigger earthen constructions, more art and jewelry, and a much expanded trade network. Archaeologists speak of the Hopewell interaction sphere, which is the vast trade network of which Ohio looks to be the heart. That Hopewell interaction sphere went from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico, and from the Mississippi River to the east, though strangely it had little influence on the east coast itself. The objects in Hopewell burials prove the trade network. They were things like mica from the east, copper from the Great Lakes, shell from the Gulf of Mexico, and soapstone from the southeast. They were big on making stone pipes, often in beautiful effigy forms of animals, and the presence of pipes means that the Hopewell were certainly smoking something. Tobacco for sure, but perhaps other things too, we're really not sure. The tradition of Hopewell burial mounds, or pyramids as I like to call them, vastly expanded. Some places had clusters of 10, 20, or even more mounds in a single area. Once there were tens of thousands of Hopewell burial mounds. Now, sadly due to looting, destruction, and the ever-increasing pace of urbanism, their numbers have been reduced to only hundreds. The name Hopewell was given to the culture by Warren Moorhead, an archaeologist studying their ruins in the 1890s. It comes not from any cultural connection, but rather from the family name of the people who owned the land he was excavating. Early archaeologists, like Moorhead, excavated burial mounds and found huge quantities of artifacts within, some of them stunningly beautiful pieces of art. Those pieces of art are also a tantalizing clue to the religious beliefs of the Hopewell. Images like birds, snakes, and quincuxes lead us to believe that the Hopewell beliefs were perhaps the predecessors of the later Mississippian culture's religion. But tragically, those pieces of art were also a catalyst for looting and the destruction of many of the Hopewell sites. Now, before I get into the topic of Hopewell earthworks, there's one other thing about their everyday life I'd like to discuss. Their villages. Honestly, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around the pattern. It doesn't make sense to me. The Hopewell built massive earthworks and burial mound clusters. I mean really huge. But they didn't live near them. Or at least as far as we can tell they didn't. Instead, they lived in small villages a mile or two off. Their villages rarely exceeded a hundred people. Most that we found are less than a hundred people. The houses were simple, and they were of the size to hold no more than one or max two families each. Most are rectangular, though some are circular at the base, and all were made of wattle and daub walls with grass roofs. Really pretty simple. The Hopewell diet was simple as well. Hunting and fishing supplied meat, and small-scale farms provided steady localized food sources. But not corn, still just native plants like pigweed, maygrass, sunflowers, and goosefoot. Perhaps most surprisingly to me is the egalitarian nature of Hopewell settlements. Excavations find no big socioeconomic differences from one house to another. Where's the chief? 
Who's organizing and benefiting from the vast Hopewell trade network? And who's organizing the labor forces that built the massive earthworks? The scale of Hopewell trade and construction activities should come with a highly centralized authority. And that central authority should be using their power to live better than the rest of society. But no evidence in the villages, absolutely none. Where we do see class differentiation is in the burials within the mounds. And when I return, we'll start talking about that. Did you know that family travel has the incredible power to shape our children's worldview and create lasting memories? In a world where representation is often lacking, it's essential for our children to see themselves reflected in every aspect of life, including the stories we tell about travel. Introducing the Travel of Legacy podcast, where we're rewriting the script by celebrating the diverse voices of black and brown family travelers. Each episode of Travel of Legacy is a testament to the enriching power and the joy of exploration in black and brown communities. So journey with us and subscribe now. If you like the subject matter of this podcast, and clearly you do because you have to be at least 10 minutes in to hear this commercial, then I suggest you give The Great Courses a try. They're produced by The Teaching Company, a company who started over 30 years ago. They're kind of the OG of the autodidactic learning world. All those other online learning companies are really just copying what they started. They have hundreds of courses, not just individual lectures, but entire courses over every subject you could imagine. I myself have produced a few courses for them. They have this great new website called The Great Courses Plus. There you can stream audio or video all of their courses from any device you choose. Their website is www.greatcoursesplus.com. Check it out today and start your free trial. Okay, on with part two of my Hopewell episode. I want this part to be mostly about the Hopewell geometry, but I said that I'd touch upon burial practices, so let's start there. There's a lot of variation in the formation of Hopewell ceremonial centers, but most of them in the Ohio area are combinations of geometric earthwork enclosures and burial pyramids. Sometimes there's just one big burial structure, like the so-called bird mound in the middle of Newark's Great Circle. And sometimes there are many, like the over 23 burial pyramids within the enclosure at Mound City. The largest of the known Hopewell burial pyramids was at the Hopewell site itself, a set of three interconnected structures that stretch over 500 feet by 180 feet And at the base, they were 30 feet tall. And by the way, Adena pyramids were more conical in shape and taller. The Adena pyramid in Miamisburg is over 65 feet tall. For better or worse, a number of the Hopewell burial mounds have been excavated, some all the way to the ground. So we have a good idea about how they were built. Many start not as a mound, but as a charnel house which is a structure used to prepare the bodies of the dead for burial. 
At some point, the charnel house is burned and then buried as the first phase of the pyramid, and the first burials are added in there. From there, the pyramids are built accretionally, or phase by phase, growing as they go. The time between phases can be years or even decades. Oftentimes, but not always, we find the most elaborate burials in the center earliest phases. They can be built of logs, or even sometimes stone slabs, and they have notably more burial offerings. There are also often discrete caches of artifacts not associated with the bodies, apparently just offerings buried at the same place as the dead. One black-and-white photo from the 1890s always shocks me when I see it. It's a photo of a little girl standing next to an excavated pile of over 8,000 chert bifaces, just piled up along a fence line at Mound City. That was just one small section of the offerings found within Mound 2 there, and most of those chert bifaces are now, air quotes, missing. What happened to them is a whole archaeological conspiracy theory, but that's a story I don't have time to get into right here. So, these objects were piles of part of a Hopewell mound in one of the sections as the mound was built over time. A phase of the mound would usually have multiple burials interred at once, sometimes dozens. This is another aspect that intrigues me. Unless we assume all the people in a single phase died at once, those people must have died and then their bodies were stored for some time before being interred as a single group. Some sort of battle or other deadly event could have made a whole group of people die at once, but the pathology of the skeletons don't indicate that. In fact, Hopewell skeletons and artifacts show virtually no evidence of violence or warfare, and neither does their settlement pattern. Fast forward to Mississippian times, and the evidence of warfare is everywhere, so the apparent passivity of the Hopewell is really very striking. But for whatever reason they were burying their dead in groups, they were. Phase by phase, a burial pyramid would grow. And then, again for reasons poorly understood, they would stop and cap the pyramid with a hard-packed surface. It would then become a structure or temple within a ceremonial center. And that's when Hopewell centers become significantly different than their Adena predecessors. They added massive geometric earthworks. The term geometric earthworks doesn't really do the Hopewell constructions justice. They're absolutely huge, mind-blowingly gigantic. The earthworks are essentially enclosures bounded by big berms of earth or dirt. The berms are basically walls, usually about 20 foot wide and anywhere from 10 to 20 foot tall. Given that they fell into disuse 1,500 to 2,000 years ago, it's hard to tell just how tall they were originally. So, that in of itself doesn't sound all that amazing, does it? You might be saying, okay, Ed, so they built some dirt walls. So what? My response in a word would be scale. These Hopewell enclosures were typically 20 acres in size. That's roughly 15 football fields. 
Another way to look at 20 acres is that roughly 17 pyramids of Giza would fit in the same footprint. So that's big. And 20 acres was not even the largest of the Hopewell earthworks that were constructed. There are ones that are 30, 40, 50. Heck, the enclosure at the Hopewell site itself is 111 acres in area. Now, I don't want to go too deeply into the math here, because this audio format without images would get too hard to follow, but just Google Hopewell Earthworks and you can see what I'm talking about. What you'll find is mainly the drawings of two amazing guys named Squire and Davis, who made maps of many of the Hopewell Earthworks in the 1840s. I'm grateful they did that, because much of what they documented is now destroyed. The extent of the Hopewell geometric enclosures that they documented covers a lot of what's the southern half of Ohio and bleeds into the surrounding modern states. But there's a particularly dense collection in the area around Chillicothe and the Scioto River Valley. Six of those sites are open to the public, maintained by the National Park Service as the Hopewell Culture National Historic Park. Many of the Hopewell enclosures are circles and squares, most near-perfect geometric shapes. Two are massive octagons, one in Newark and the other in High Bank near Chili Coffee. The repetition of these shapes alone demonstrate the communication between discrete Hopewell communities, but a repeated set of proportions reveal an almost unbelievable level of coordination. There are multiple books on the subject of Hopewell geometry, but I find the works of my friend and colleague William Romaine particularly insightful. In his book, Mysteries of the Hopewell, he documents a measurement repeating again and again in the earthworks. It's 1,053 feet. That was actually first noticed in the 1980s, but Bill brings it to another level. Sometimes it's the length of the side of a square, sometimes the diagonal, sometimes the diameter of a circle. It's even clearly present in both of the Hopewell octagons. Now, Bill suggests that 1,053 feet, actually he says 2,106 feet, might have been a Hopewell unit of measure. That, I'm not sure about. It seems impractical to me to be carrying around 2,000 feet of rope. However, Bill is definitely onto something, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was a Hopewell unit of measure, some fraction of 1,053 feet. But repeated use of specific measurements of length weren't all the tricks in the Hopewell geometer's bag. They were also clearly playing with area. We can very simply see again and again that there are enclosures of 20 acres. They're very common in the Hopewell area. One of the neatest examples is at Newark, where the circumference of the fairground circle is 3,736 feet, and the perimeter of the Newark Square is 3,712 feet. The difference between those two is less than 1%. Another more common Hopewell geometric pursuit is what's called squaring the circle or circling the square. There are four different ways that circles and squares can fit together. Hindu mandalas love to play with the combinations. At the Hopeton site, 
Its 20-acre circle fits perfectly into the square constructed right next to it. At the Circleville site, the square fits perfectly into the circle once located right next to it. Unfortunately, the town of Circleville decided the ancient circle was messing with the town's urban grid plan, and in 1838, the Circleville Squaring Company was created to wreck it. Today, nothing remains but drawings and a small chunk of the enclosure at the corner of Pickaway and Franklin Streets. There are yet other examples that require the involvement of an equilateral triangle to understand them. The seal site is one such. Its circle is 1,050 feet in diameter, just off Romaine's 1,053 feet. The seal circle is connected by a walled walkway to the site's square, which measures 852 feet on a side. At first glance, this circle-square pair seems unrelated. But if one draws an equilateral triangle fitting perfectly inside the seal circle, its sides are all 852 feet, same as the square. The square-circle pairs at Shriver, Baum, and Mound City earthworks all roughly work with equilateral triangles in the same way. Romaine documents many of the Hopewell sites exhibiting these kind of geometric principles, and he's pretty open about the fact that they're not all perfect examples. There are lumpy circles and perfect squares, and many cases where the measurements are in one within 1-2% to of a geometric formula, but definitely not perfect. But to me, it's not the perfection of the shapes, but the repetition that's important. I describe it as the preponderance of evidence. Were the Hopewell perfect? No. They were humans with ropes and digging sticks. But do the closely identical shapes and sizes across dozens of sites indicate a pattern and an intentionality? In my view, absolutely. The statistical probability that that could have happened randomly is astronomical. And speaking of astronomical... The astronomical aspects of Hopewell Earthworks will be the subject of my next segment. But for now, let's take a quick break. This break is where commercials should go. But until I find people who'd like to buy the time, I'll just promote what I'm doing. If you like the cultures and places I'm talking about in this podcast, you should consider traveling with my colleagues and I. I'm the director of Maya Exploration Center, a nonprofit dedicated to the better understanding of ancient American civilizations. We do that through things like this podcast, our website, public lectures, and educational travel programs like I just mentioned. If you'd like to find out more about how to get involved, or just give us a donation to continue our work, check us out at www.mayaexploration.org. That's mayaexploration.org. Okay, I'm back to the mic and ready to talk about Hopewell astronomy. I'm excited to even be able to say the term Hopewell astronomy, and without the existence of their amazing earthworks, we'd have no evidence with which to discuss this topic. But we do. 
And on top of the geometry we just discussed, the earthworks also encode, if you will, their knowledge of astronomy. Now, when I say Hopewell astronomy, I've got my archaeoastronomer's hat on. For the Americas, that generally means that I keep my focus on objects within our solar system, visible to the naked eye, and generally horizon-based. That means I'm looking at the rise and set of celestial objects. I'll probably repeat this a lot during this podcast series, but I'm skeptical of most stellar alignments. The simple reason being that precession shifts the stars one degree every 72 years. That means over the Hopewell culture's 600-year lifespan, the stars moved over 8 degrees. And that's just too much shift for judging an ancient building's alignments. Generally speaking, I tend to get skeptical at anything 2 degrees or more off from where it should be. So, instead, I look for solar, lunar, and planetary alignments, or in the case of written math, numerical cycles. In the case of the Hopewell, the known observations are all solar and lunar. Also, as with virtually all Native American astronomy, it's horizon-based. There are a number of the Hopewell square earthworks that align themselves to the solstices, either the rising or setting of winter or summer solstice. For Ohio's latitude, that's about 30 degrees off east or west, north for the summer solstice, south for the winter. The naked eye has a very hard time seeing orientation differences between less than half a degree, and the diameter of the sun and moon on the horizon are more than one degree. So I don't get worked up about talking about or looking for sub-degree accuracy of building alignments. Again, it's repeated patterns that I look for, statistical improbabilities that provide a preponderance of evidence. The squares of Hopeton, Dunlap, Anderson, Mound City, Marietta, and the Hopewell site all have solstice alignments. Most of them are found not along the sides of their squares, but through one of its diagonal. Marietta is a particularly good example because it has a rectangular earthwork, square burial mounds, and a long causeway called Sacra Via that all point in the direction of winter solstice sunset. Now again, this is a fact that I might end up repeating in this podcast series, but since this is one of our first discussions of archaeoastronomy, it's important to mention it. When an ancient astronomer is on a flat horizon, looking at, say, the winter solstice sunset like at Marietta, if he turns exactly 180 degrees around, he'll be looking at the rise point for the summer solstice sunrise. Winter solstice sunrise and summer solstice sunset are related in the same way. Of course, you can't see both happen in a single day. They're six months apart. But if you're recording the rises and sets year after year, you'd for sure notice this equal opposite angular relationship between the solstices rise and set points. And this would mean that if you aligned a massive square earthwork correctly, 
you could capture not one, but two solar horizon points. If you stood in the center and could see the winter solstice sunrise over one corner, then you could return six months later and see the summer solstice sunset over the opposite corner. That wasn't an invention or a trick. That was an observation of nature, and no doubt meaningful to the ancient astronomer. Now all this assumes a flat horizon. Mountains in the west and none in the east would screw that up. And that's what makes the Hopewell site of Marietta so neat. A big mountain ridge across the river from Marietta rises up seven degrees above a flat horizon. But the Marietta winter solstice sunset orientation compensates for it. Instead of being the 240 degree azimuth it should be for a flat horizon, the site's orientation is 231 degrees. The Hopewell were carefully combining astronomy and land survey techniques to make it all work. But gosh, I've gotten myself off on a tangent and I'm eating up my time to discuss the even more impressive aspects of Hopewell archaeoastronomy, their lunar alignments. In the 1960s, Gerald Hawkins' book, Stonehenge Decoded, became wildly popular and set off a race to find similar astronomical alignments at ancient sites across the globe. Eventually, the craze arrived to Ohio. Two smart guys named Ray Hively and Robert Horn decided that Newark's octagon, with its geometrically regular construction, would make a good case study for the newly minted field of archaeoastronomy. Over a few summers in the mid-1970s, the two men and a group of students surveyed and mapped the Newark octagon and connected circle. The resultant map was nearly identical to the one made by Squire and Davis back in the 1840s. I love it when the old school guys get it so right. For Hively and Horn, that was proof that the octagon was in its original state, just like the Hopewell built it. Why wasn't it ruined like so many other Hopewell earthworks? Ironically, because it was protected by becoming the golf course of the Mound Builders Country Club. As I record this podcast, the Ohio History Connection is in a protracted court case to force the country club to sell it to them so it can become an accessible archaeological park. I hope they win. Good luck, guys. But anyway, back to Hively and Horn in the 1970s. They study the octagon's many angles for solstice alignments and find none. Hively jokes that perhaps it was a cult of solar avoidance. But as it turns out, they found that it's much better aligned to the moon. In fact, its many angles capture every single lunar alignment in one single structure. Again, this is one of my first podcasts, and I need to step back for a moment and explain what lunar alignments are. If you're a horizon-based astronomer, that means that you're watching the rise and set of objects at dawn and dusk, kind of like a collection of snapshot photos that show how they move night after night. For the sun, 
it will slowly move along the horizon from a maximum southern place on the horizon. In the case of Ohio, that's about 30 degrees south off of east or west. To its farthest northern point, also 30 degrees off of east or west. And finally back to its southernmost point in the south. That cycle repeats over roughly a 365-day period. In fact, that defines our concept of a year. The moon can travel along the horizon just as far as the sun, plus a few degrees more. At Ohio's latitude, that's about six or seven degrees further north or south. We can call those horizon points lunar maximums, or sometimes they're called lunar max excursions. Just to note again here, I'm not talking about exact fractions to explain the concept. Those are readily available in books if you want to see them, but I'm talking about the general patterns that prove behavior. Unlike the sun, the moon will travel its rise and set points all the way north and south over just one single month, not a whole year. Some of those rise and set times are in the evening, and some of them are during the day. And it doesn't always go as far north or south as it's capable of going. The moon is complicated. But if you keep watching it for years and years, you'll discover that it will only go to its maximum north or south at full moon every 18.6 years. That's the cycle that the Hopewell and many other ancient cultures were capturing in their building alignments. At halfway through that cycle, basically 9.3 years, it rises and sets at full moon at its lunar minimums, being 6 or 7 degrees less than the farthest the sun can go out. So, returning to the Newark octagon, those alignments that Hively and Horn found are in fact all eight of the lunar alignment spots. That's four maximums and four minimums. And the main alignment with the corridor connecting the octagon to the circle is the maximum northern moonrise. Now, if that was only found at Newark, one might call it an anomaly. But many other Hopewell lunar alignments have been found as well. Most notably is at the only other Hopewell octagon at High Bank. It's about 90 kilometers away from Newark. It too has lunar alignments, but not the same ones that Newark has. It appears that their creators were playing with how they could do it differently with octagonal geometry. A handful of other Hopewell earthworks also have lunar alignments. Not all but enough to call it an intentional pattern of behavior. Romain also notes an interesting pattern of charnel houses under Hopewell mounds aligning to lunar stations. All that remains now of those are post holes in the structures, but it's enough to judge their alignments, and it proves that apparently there's some sort of connection between Hopewell dead and lunar astronomy. Okay, let me try to conclude this episode by putting all of these pieces together in as clear a way as I can. At roughly the same time as the height of the Roman Empire, 
we have a thriving civilization in North America whose epicenter is the river valleys of modern-day Ohio. Geographically speaking, the extent of its trade network spanned the entire eastern half of the United States, an area really rivaling that of the Roman Empire's extents. They understand the principles of geometry and astronomy and were playing with their interrelationship by displaying them in massive earthwork enclosures. Those earthworks are not only individually gigantic, but together they form the largest collection of geometric earthworks on the planet. And on top of that, their construction is still a bona fide mystery. It's not that the Hopewell weren't capable of it, clearly they were, but how did they organize to get it done? Geometric earthworks like this would take crews of hundreds of people to build and leaders with great powers of persuasion. But all we find are tiny, relatively egalitarian Hopewell villages. Where are the elites? Where are the big towns? Where's the art exalting their power? It's hard to accept, but it seems that small, relatively peaceful Hopewell villages banded together to make their earthworks. And then there's the final big question. Why did they build them? Their connection to astronomy leads some to believe that the, they were gathering places for celestial time ceremonies. Perhaps so. But then where's all the party trash? This same question can be asked of many great ancient sites, Chaco Canyon, the Henges of Europe, Easter Island, etc. To my mind, and let me be totally clear that this is just a theory, perhaps the building of the earthworks was the ceremonial event. Once every decade or two, time to a mutually understood lunar event, they would all gather together as a single people and build something great together. Shared effort to make a public monument is a powerful binder of community. So, well, perhaps that's too simple an explanation for some, but sometimes the simplest explanation is the correct one. But however the Hopewell civilization happened, they gave up the ghost in about 500 CE, and the geometric earthworks ceased. However, North American civilization was far from over. Perhaps in future episodes, I'll explain the next chapter for the eastern U.S., the mighty Mississippian civilization. But until then, thanks for listening, and for this episode, goodbye. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast about ancient civilizations of the Americas. If you liked what you heard, then do all those things that I'm supposed to ask you to do, like subscribe, share, leave a review, and rate it. If you didn't like it, then don't do any of that stuff. This podcast was conceived, produced, and edited by me, Dr. Ed Barnhart, with the occasional help of my children, who are more tech-savvy and definitely cooler than I. All rights reserved. Copyright 2019.